Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down and goes one-on-one with LA Dodgers Mike Man, Charlie Steiner. And the Rockets, Brett uh oh. Uh Written by Francis Scott off key. Those were last night's lowlights. They're last night's highlights. <laughs> and now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the program, we've got my favorite baseball announcer out there. He's called games for two of the most iconic franchises in Major League Baseball history. Yankees and the Dodgers. He's inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame in 2013, and he's known for some of the best Sports Center commercials of all time. I think Holy, if I'm not mistaken, I think Holyfield's still looking for you, Charlie. He's a current play-by-play announcer for the L.A. Dodgers. Ladies and gentlemen, Charlie Steiner. Charlie, thanks for coming on. For you, anything. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Almost anything. Well, where, what are my limits? <laughs> I guess we'll find out together. We'll find out. We'll find out. All right. Right off the top. How did my favorite play-by-play guy, and Charlie, I, I never tell you this because I don't, you know, I don't like to pump your head up, but I really do. There's not too many guys I like listening to in the game today because you know how much I know. <laughs> and I yell at the radio, but whenever I hear you calling the Dodger game and I'm just driving around town, I, I just love listening to Charlie Steiner. I think so. But how did that guy sound? We're going to turn back the clock a little bit. 1971, Davenport, Iowa. Ooh. That was my second job. Actually, I started in, uh, in college 69. in 67. And then uh, that was in Peoria. And from Peoria, I went to Davenport, Iowa. I was in Davenport for like six months. When, when I came to realize it didn't like me and I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> how did I sound? Um, desperate to get out, I suppose. Um, I, again, to backtrack and start at the beginning, when I was about five or six years old, the first time I heard a baseball game on the radio, it was the Brooklyn Dodgers, and it was Vin Scully's voice, and I said, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Um, and so I knew early what I wanted to do, where I wanted to be. I wasn't quite sure how to do it, and I wasn't quite sure if I'd ever get there. Uh, but lo and behold, I did. Um, so what did I sound like in 1971? Uh, probably not very good. Um, but I had to work hard and go to a lot of different places to get better and better, you know, from Peoria, Davenport, New Haven, Hartford, Cleveland, New York, Bristol, Connecticut, to the Bronx and on to LA. And so it's 50 something years and, um, I've still not had a real job. (laughs) So in 77, that's the first time you get, okay, so you're doing radio. And we're going to cover this as the as the Boone podcast goes on. I mean, you've covered it all from boxing to football to tennis to obviously baseball. But in 77, your first TV gig, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? In Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, kind of, sort of. Um, after I left 
Hartford, where early part of my career, I was basically in news. You know, there weren't sports stations. There wasn't sports talk. There wasn't cable. There wasn't anything. You, know, you just had to get on the air and, 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 you know, get as many reps as you could. I did news. I read hog prices in Peoria. Uh, I ended up running a couple of all news radio stations along the way. First in uh, Hartford, and then I was offered a similar role in Cleveland. And there in Cleveland, I would end up replacing uh, what I came to find out later was a legendary sportscaster. I did that because I was news director, and I had to hire a sports guy. And so I hired me. And it kind of worked out all right. And within a few months, uh, one of the local stations in Cleveland, Channel 3, um, asked me if I would do a couple of taped commentaries a week. I was one of those young, wild whippersnappers. And, uh, and that was where it started. Not Hell, I was on the air there for maybe six months on television. Then I was working so damn hard, I ended up with Bono, and I was out of work for about four months. And from that point on, then I was offered a job in, in New York, which I ultimately took. Um, and so for me, you know, I, when I got to ESPN in 88, I was 39. I wasn't a kid. I'd already been working 20 years in the business. So, I, you know, I was one of those guys, metaphorically speaking, Booney, that I, ju- I rode the buses for a long time. Um, and that was how whatever success I have had came about. I always kind of, one of the reasons I always liked Casey Blake was a guy who worked eight or nine years at the minor league level to become a really good major league player. I always kind of envisioned myself, or at least as I watched him play, there was a lot of me and him and a lot of him and me. No, that's interesting too, because I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, you know, I had kind of a typical go to college, get drafted. I was in the minor league a couple of years. Usually if, if you break down, you know, most major league baseball players, that's how it goes. Usually, you know, there's exceptions now and they're moving guys on a little quicker uh, than they used to. But in my day, the real players that were going to be there a long time usually got to the big leagues between 22 and 24. But I did have a soft spot to, you know, even being a player, for that guy that just has been grinding and in the minor leagues. Uh, I remembered a guy in Seattle when I was first coming up and he was my AAA shortstop and I'm 21 years old. I think he was pushing 30. His name was Rich Amaral. And he ended up getting six or seven years in the big leagues. Couldn't be a better guy, but just was a really good player. And, And it took till he was 30 years old to, to get that opportunity and ended up making a, a big league career out of it. So even today, you know, with all the talking and, and you'll hear fans once in a while, these guys are overpaid this and that, whatever the minimum is. I just sit back sometimes and go, <laughs> when you break it down, these guys give up so much. They give up their entire lives to go for their dream. And and when the guys make it, man, they, they earn every penny. And the story you told is, is not a different, it's, it's just a different genre. It's a different job, but you're going for the yeah. same thing. You want to get to the big time. 78, you just talked about it. You go to New York and I think you work for Eddie LeBeck from Cheers. Jay Thomas. Was, Jay was Thomas. A dear friend of mine. Um, yeah. When I got to New York, uh, it was 77. 
um, after leaving Cleveland. And uh, Jay was doing, it was the morning jock. And I came in, I was going to be the morning newscaster and uh, uh, basically straight man, punchline guy. Uh, and we had a, a wonderful friendship for about three, three and a half years. And again, talking about paying dues, uh, he, Jay always wanted to be a comedian and a, a comedic actor. So he would do uh, Laugh Factory and all those uh, comedy clubs in New York uh, in hopes of someday being something more than a morning job. And one night in 79, uh, Robin Williams, who had just started on Mork and Mindy, and we had no idea what his stand-up act would look like, was playing at the Copacabana, which, of course, no longer exists. So Jay and I go see him. And Jay, who was serious about being a, a comedian, watched this unbelievable set from Robin Williams. You know, we didn't know what to expect, and, and it was something to this day I vividly remember. And we left, and Jay was terribly depressed, because he said, if this is what I have to compete against, I have no chance. Fast forward maybe two weeks. Jay, his agent, gets a call because he was also auditioning for commercials and acting and all that sort of stuff. And he was uh, asked to come out and audition for a role uh, in Mork and Mindy, which he got. Um, and that would be the end of our radio partnership but we remained friends and until his death a few years ago but jay was another one of those guys who paid his dues um you know he was disc jockeying in jacksonville and charlotte and then finally new york and then he gets uh, the chance of a lifetime with mork and mindy and then he goes on to cheers so it's those kinds of guys whether it's players actors musicians who have ridden the buses and paid their dues and worked real hard. Those are the ones I admire the most. Yeah, that's very cool. All right, we go to uh, 83 and, and we got the launch of a new league. We're going we're gonna to have this league that's going to compete with the NFL. Star of the league is going to be Herschel Walker. And mm -hmm. uh, you take over as I believe it was the play-by-play -play for the New Jersey Generals. I want to hear about I because I'm just, a, I'm, just, I'm just a kid then. I'm probably 13 years old, but I remember that. And I remember them plastering Herschel Walker everywhere and going, this is a new league? Well, I only know the NFL. And, you know, I'm living in Jersey, and all I know is the Eagles. So I'm thinking new league. It only lasted a few years, but but uh, give me some insight to that to that venture. All right. I was very lucky, again, uh, having moved around from one place to the next. By the time I got to New York, uh, RKO had just started a new radio network, which lasts maybe five or six years. Um, but I was uh, named the sports director to this network, and I hired a, a coach who had just retired from the NFL, who was doing the fifth network game on CBS named John Madden. Uh, I had Madden. I hired uh, Keith Olbermann. Uh, we had uh, later on Tim McCarver. Anyway, it was a great network, and I was very lucky. And lo and behold, here were these people. And I was given a, essentially a blank check to build this thing. Um, 
And the AM station in New York, WOR, which is the number one station in town, um, had you know this big morning show that had been popular for 50 years and all that. And Don Crickey, you remember the name Don Crickey? He had been I doing know. the morning sports. And then he was uh, offered a job at another station. Suddenly, I am asked to do the morning sports on this on this big uh, show. Uh, and the, this radio station, WOR, then went out and purchased the rights to broadcast this new league, the USFL and the New Jersey Generals. And they said, would you like to do it? What am I going to say? Um, so, of course, I did. And... Uh, the first year, the team was owned by a, an oil man from Oklahoma named Jay Walter Duncan, who in the second year sold the team to a, a boy builder by the name of Donald Trump. Um, so I, Trump and I go back a very long time. I'm not particularly <laughs> proud of it, but what are you going to do? Um, so, yeah, so I broadcast uh, the generals in the USFL for three years until that league went out of business in large part due to the chicanery of the uh, future president. Um, so that, uh, again, I've had this incredible journey where stuff just keeps falling onto my plate. And for the most part, when given the opportunity, I haven't screwed it up too badly. And it's the, uh, the old uh, Branch Rickey line, luck is the residue of design. Uh, so I, I was kind of, in the neighborhood when stuff was happening. And, and that was the same way that out of, out of the blue uh, ESPN called in, in, in 88. So I've had the, the serendipitous journey where people have said, would you like to come work for us? And uh, I have, and for the most part, like I said, I haven't screwed it up too badly. It, yeah. And you go on, you go to the jets in 86 and 87. And I'm thinking, cause I remember Charlie Steiner as a kid, I've seen you on sports center and then, you know, followed you a long time, the boxing, and then last good part of the last 20 years, consistently doing either Yankee or Dodgers games. But but when you go to the Jets in 86, have, have you done baseball at this point? Have you called any baseball games, or is it strictly? Oh, no, I did a couple of games in college. That doesn't count. Um, that doesn't and that count. Was 20 years earlier. I, you know, again, I, I can't emphasize this point enough. I always wanted to be the Dodger announcer. I didn't want to be another Vin Scully. I didn't want to replace Vin Scully. I just wanted to be the Dodger announcer. And again, in those days, going back to the 70s and 80s, uh, there, were, there was no ESPN. Uh, there was no, you just got on the air and did whatever you could do to be the best broadcaster you could be. And when opportunities opened up um i i learned how to broadcast that is to say to be able to communicate one-on-one -on -one with a listener and later with a viewer um and i always loved baseball i knew baseball as a baseball fan and so when i at espn first game i ever really broadcast was on espn um but i, I again i i knew the game i knew how to broadcast i just needed to have reps to make sure as a play-by-play -play announcer, I was doing it right. Timing, um, understanding the nuances of the game. I played 
poorly enough that I knew I could never play professionally, but well enough that I understood the game and understood what it was like to play with injuries and all of that stuff. And so for any number of reasons in this crazy uh, equation, uh, yeah, my first game was uh, what they called a backup game at ESPN. And that was, I guess, 90. 93 and then by uh 98 when they got the uh, radio rights to uh, sunday night baseball uh, i got that job and then from that then to uh, the yankees and then to the dodgers and before i get to that that espn stint because i've got a lot of questions for you about that that's kind of the heyday of espn it was right when yeah. i was signing as a professional when it was really in those days Give me one story. Give me the 81 McEnroe story. I was reading about this, getting ready for my boy, Charlie Steiner, and I'm reading the McEnroe. I love, from a from a young kid growing up, I love McEnroe. Never met him, never shook his hand. But the way he played, how good he was, and just the personality he brought. Uh, I, I, I got to hear this story. So it's, it's post-match, post-match. All right, you take it from there. Okay, again, putting this into perspective, at that point, 81, I was at this new fledgling radio network, RKO. And so we tried as much as possible to be present at all of the big events. And Wimbledon, obviously, was a big deal. Um, And McEnroe and Borg was one of the great rivalries in sports, yet there were only nine head-to-head meetings between them. And they were, could not have been more opposite personalities, uh, fire and brimstone. Um, and at that point, again, this all comes full circle. So that's 1981. So what are we looking at? 40 years now. Um, a young lady die was in the process of becoming princess die. Um, and one of the writers who was covering Wimbledon, guy named Jules Whitaker, his previous assignment was to determine whether or not the then uh, Lady Di was a virgin or not. I can't make this up. So after each match in a very confined press room at the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, it's a tiny little press room, and you know, Wimbledon is 100 years old, so they don't know anything, certainly that back then, about a big press room and so on. After each one of McEnroe's matches, McEnroe was seeing another tennis player, Stacey Margolin. This Whitaker fellow would ask him after each match, is it true you and Ms. Margolin are Splitsville? Who uses the term Splitsville in conversation? This guy did, and McEnroe would say after each match, look, I'm not going to talk about my personal life. We'll talk tennis until whenever. After each match that he won... Uh, this guy would ask the same question again, and McEnroe would get increasingly pissed off. And this little tiny press room got more crowded and more crowded. After he wins the semifinal match, you know, this is when McEnroe was at his tempestuous best. Chalk flew up. How could you call it out? Uh, you're the pits of the world. Um, he was obviously a very polarizing figure. Uh, the young folk in Britain, Loved him. The establishment couldn't stand him. And so this is becoming, you know, 
it's beginning to percolate. So after the semifinal match, this guy asks again, is it true you and Ms. Mark go under Splitsville and McEnroe just gets crazy? He tosses uh, this, uh, this table from which he was sit- behind which he was sitting, and he, is, he just launches one F-bomb after another and storms out. And in this crowded little press room, uh, I go over to this Jules Whitaker with a, a, a writer from the then Life magazine, which gives you some idea how long ago, and said, hey, you're screwing it up for everybody else. We just want to get our quotes and our tape and all of that. And he gets into my face. And then this other fella, uh, Niles, uh, what the, I forgot his last name already, uh, uh, comes over to me and he sticks his finger in my face, kind of like uh, Earl Weaver and Ron Luciano. And I said, get your finger out of my face. And it's slapping it back and forth. And then all of a sudden, um, he, he stands up on a chair and he said, do you want to settle this thing outside? And he jumps on me. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't been in a fight since junior high school, a late hit playing football. Now I'm in this goddamn free for all that is being watched as it turns out around the world and it was like this is not exactly how i had intended my first overseas assignment to play out but that's what it was and that's you know 40 years later it's one of those deals and i'm sure they're going to be talking about a lot in uh, june and july as we get to the anniversary of uh, this free for all um nigel clark was the was the, was the little fellow who jumped on the uh, on the chair and jumped on me and, it, and so I get back to the hotel and you know there was no voicemail or any of that stuff then you had those pink uh, message things I had a stack of pink message things from all these uh, newspapers and radio stations in the states and I'm th- and it's the third of July so I'm thinking oh my God I'm going to lose my job and all of this well anyway people in the States are thinking this was some great patriotic chore of mine to defend McEnroe on foreign land. No, it had nothing to do with it, but okay, maybe I'll keep my job this way. And, and that's basically what happens. The guy who was studying Lady Di and her virginity um, becomes the, the focal point of a free-for-all between me and this tennis writer from London. And, and you're just- that was 40 years ago. And you're just trying, I can see it too, Charlie, you're in there, you're going, all right, I don't know what day of the tournament was, but all right, I got to get my, I got to get my quotes. I got to get my questions there. So I'm going to get the hell out and I got to write this to get in on my deadline. You're like, is this guy going to come up with it? A- another stupid question. He knows this is just, get- I-, I can see it happen, but that's. Yeah, what was the- McEnroe just got pissed off. I yeah, mean, like how many times I got to tell you? Yeah. It was, all right. it was, it was insane. I was just. Stuck in the middle of this shit. All right, 88. Now that's ESPN. We're going to Connecticut. This is ESPN's heyday. And when I was when I was thinking about uh, today and, and talking to you on the podcast, it's kind of to me and a lot of players from my generation, that original ESPN crew, you know, you had – Oberman and Bob Lee and Berman and Dan Patrick. It's almost like the original Saturday Night Live crew. I mean, I signed in, in 1990 as a minor leaguer, as as you talked about earlier, 
there weren't a ton of outlets. ESPN, Sports Center, which evolved into baseball tonight, that was our, you know, the, the pro players, that was our, our thing. It's like minor leagues, finish our game in, in uh, wherever, Peninsula, Virginia. I'm playing A-ball, and all of us rush home to get to Sports Center because we can't miss that because that's where we get our info. We don't have Twitter. We don't have computers. We got to find out what the big boys did. Uh, and then once I get to the big leagues, 92, same thing. You know, you have a big game. It's like, hey, if we get home a little quicker tonight, I might catch a little Sports Center and, and yeah. they might have me going deeper. Uh, just tell me about those times right there when it was first starting out. It was all fresh, new. Uh, that that's kind of the heyday of his ESPN though, and and I think it's pretty special time. What was uh what was your experience like? You know, again, I luck being the residue of design. I was working at WABC in New York when I went uh, from WOR to ABC, where I then started broadcasting for the Jets. And new management came in, and they opted to basically purge the whole joint. So I'd been there for a couple of years. And uh, everybody was, they were just bringing in a new crew. Fine. I still had nine months left on my contract. So, okay, whatever will be. And then out of nowhere, this is when they're beginning to rebuild sports center. ESPN went on in 79. I got there in 88. But sports center hadn't really taken hold yet. So they brought in a whole bunch of new people. Um, they brought me in, who had had very little television experience. Peter Gammons came in at precisely the right time that I did. Uh, Andrea Kramer came in at the time that I did. And so I was the first of the new Sports Center guys who had had no television experience to speak of, certainly nothing live. Um, and then, so I arrived, and within about a year, year and a half, uh, Patrick shows up. Olbermann shows up, uh, Robin Roberts shows up, Mike Tirico shows up. Um, and so there was this surge of talent. Um, and if John Walsh, uh, who was the, the grand poobah, who, who oversaw this and, and had the vision of what Sports Center might be, brought us in. Um, and it didn't matter in, in my case, whether I'd done television or not. And in the beginning, uh, those who might have seen me early, it was pretty apparent that I hadn't. Uh, but within the space of about two or three years, Sports Center became more than just a, a show on, on cable in Connecticut. It became this thing. And we were the last ones to realize it was this thing. Um, you know, for guys like you or guys who anybody who was on the road, you remember driving past uh, motels and they'd say, we have HBO and we have ESPN on his billboard. So, again, we were the last ones to realize that this thing was really taking off. And then uh, so I was there for 14 years altogether, uh, but about four Four or five years into my journey there, that's when I began to realize, uh-oh, this is, this is a much bigger deal than I had ever possibly envisioned. And my agent who had uh, negotiated the deal for me when uh, my first contract 
at ESPN. He advised me not to go there. He said, what do you, what do you want to go to a cable station in Connecticut for? Um, and, you know, it was a legitimate question. On the other side of the coin, I figured, well, if I was ever going to do TV, um, let's give this a shot. And if it doesn't work out, I can always go back to radio where I, I did pretty well. Well, it worked out, and uh, within six months, I was doing the 7 p.m. Eastern show with uh, with Bob Lee, and then uh, a couple of years into our time together, Robin Roberts joined us, and so the three of us worked together, and it, it was one of the joys of my life. We we worked the early show. Keith and Dan did uh, the 11, 11 o'clock, 11 or 11.30 p.m. show after us. And so, again, um, just I, I stepped in crap and came out smell like Chanel. Yeah, and it was such an important time. And I don't say that lightly for if you're in the certain age group, that ESPN time and that Sports Center time in those years was was really huge and, and for everybody. And kind of, I think even today, it's it's been that what started it all and all the outlets we have today, it started with that sports center and that group of, of people that you guys mentioned. Uh, tell me about, okay, I've had a little uh, experience in, and I'll, I'll be honest. I had a blast doing it, doing those, those silly commercials. And we would do uh-huh. the ones that, that, that were my favorite were when I was in Seattle in the early two thousands. And I'll tell you, I'm getting ready for spring training and my off season workout. One of the funnest things I, I look forward to uh, was what commercial are they going to have for me this year? And you know, how am I going to put my little stamp on it to, to say that I had something to do with it? And and the baseball was was secondary. I'm like, all right, I just got to do this good commercial. I had a blast. And it's probably because it's not what I do for a living. It, it was kind of an outlet. <laughs> I'm not a very good actor, but it's just a time to kind of let your hair down, be goofy. I enjoy. Did you enjoy him that much or was it was it more? Well, uh, I got to do this for ESPN. No, it, it was crazy because. When I first got there, and really up until the time we started filming those commercials, the the focus of management was to suppress personality. All they wanted was the ESPN logo. They didn't they didn't want us to be terribly popular because it might actually cost them money at some point. Um, so what happened was they finally came to realize maybe they should start promoting. The, the personalities and they had two producers come in from Wyden and Kennedy uh, advertising agency from uh, Portland, if I remember correctly. Uh, and they were the ones who did the Nike commercials, IBM commercials. And then now they're doing us, and, but we didn't know who these two guys were. So they're just watching us work every day for a couple of weeks. And then a staff meeting is called and they have all the anchors come up. And then there were only about, 10 or 12 of us, you know, there wasn't an ESPN two or any of that stuff yet. And they introduced these two guys. Um, and they said, well, they have been watching you for the last few weeks. They are the creators for Wyden and Kennedy, and we're going to do a commercial campaign. And we want these commercials to be you know, kind of an extension of who you are. And, and, and we'll just have fun with it. Well, lo and behold, they start giving me all these wonderful punchlines 
to these wonderful commercials. And I had no idea I was going to become a quasi comedic actor in, in commercials that were enormously successful. I mean, here we are, it's uh, more than what, 30, yeah, almost 30 years uh, or 20 years, whatever, 20. Um, follow me to freedom. It was the millennium. Um, and, you know, it still has, has some legs, I suppose. And the, the Holyfield spot. So I, and I, I got traded to Melrose Place. So, yeah. It was, you. It, yep. And why they, why they gave me these commercials. I felt like Marv Throneberry. I didn't understand why they put me in these things. Um, but they turned out, for the most part, to be pretty funny. And, and I had no idea my career would go in that path for a while. But, yeah, they were great fun to do. Well, that's because you are funny, Charlie. And I'm speak, a laugh riot. Speak, speaking of fun, this is the best. Carl Lewis singing the national anthem. Oh. Cut, to, cut to Charlie. He can't contain himself. All right. Here's, here's the Carl Lewis story. All right. It's 1992. So now we're looking at what? Almost 30, 30 years. Uh, we would have a meeting every morning for the 7 o'clock show, about 10, 1030, an editorial meeting what we were likely to do, where our reporters were, what the story angles were going to be. It was an editorial meeting. And driving into work that morning, I'm listening on the radio, and, and they have like a 10-second bite of Carl Lewis just butchering the anthem, which I found to be reasonably entertaining. And so I said in the meeting, and, and in those days, they would always give me the kicker, the final story of the night, which would hopefully provide a little bit of levity. Um, and I said to them what I had heard on the radio. Maybe we have video of that. Well, they go downstairs. It was before a Nets-Bulls game in New Jersey. And they have the whole thing. So they bring it up in that. But we had tape cartridges in those days. They put it into a machine. And there are about 10 or 15 of us in this editorial meeting. And naturally, we all find it reasonably funny. And so the uh, producer that night said, well, why don't you do a, a lead in for this thing and then say good night? All right. Well, as the day goes on, uh, they've cut this Lewis highlight to maybe 40 seconds, whatever it was. And as everybody remembers, he couldn't sing a lick. Um, and, I, and this is the old days before we had offices. I my seat, my desk was next to this bank of uh, tape machines and monitors. So everybody had heard about it. Each person who came in that day, put it in, put it on, found it funny. And I probably heard it 20 or 25 times that day. And it cracked me up every time. And so I'm thinking, okay, by 728, by the end of the show, I should have been pretty much laughed out by this. And, you know, so I introduce it, you know, and I think I said something in effect uh, that uh, um, Clint Eastwood said a man has to know his limitations. Carl Lewis evidently never got the message. He, they play it. It's awful. And while it's awful, I'm on the set with uh, Jack Edwards, who I was co-anchoring with that night. And we have the guy with the teleprompter, the stage manager and all that other stuff. And I'm laughing hysterically. They're laughing hysterically. Now the tape is over. They come back to me and I'm, I'm toast. And, you know, boogers are flying out of my nose. 
and tears are coming out of my face, laughing hysterically. So, you know, it, all you have to do is go to YouTube if you haven't seen it. And if you have, you'll see it again. But it, I, I was scared to death. I had just lost my job because I had so thoroughly lost my composure on national television. And so I go upstairs and I take my earpiece out and I drop it off in my desk and I walk into the room and I'm thinking, I, I, I've got no job left. Everybody is hysterically laughing. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, maybe I can survive this thing. And four hours later, uh, Keith and Dan, I think it's the only time they ever re-aired a whole segment of SportsCenter from the previous show. And it was just me losing it. So it's there. And when ESPN has its 100th anniversary and I'm dead and buried, Carl Lewis is dead and buried, he will be my date for the party. It'll still, it's, it still holds up today. I watched it last night. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm laughing still today. It's, it's like when you're in seventh grade. And you can always keep it together, but you and your buddy got something going, you know, you got some joke. But usually when it's time to be, you know, to compose ourselves for the teacher so we don't get in trouble, we usually have the ability to pull it together. But Booney, that was exactly what it was. I felt like the substitute teacher. I held it in as long as I could, and then it was it was over. Too late. <laughs> Done. <laughs> it's awesome. All right, 98. But, you know, it, it, just to add one thing and, and how actually it was kind of an important thing for me, because again, I was not a natural TV guy. Um, and the fact that I lost it, I was so, it didn't matter whether I was on TV or not. I, it, it was a liberating moment. So anything that I have said or done on air from that point to, as we speak now, it, it, it's all okay. I, if I survive that, I can say pretty near anything or do pretty near anything within good taste. And it was, so it was a very liberating experience for me. And it, again, it's one of those that it, it's, you know, funny is funny. It doesn't matter how old or how long it's been. So 98, uh, you're the original announcer for Sunday no, night I, baseball. Yeah, at 98. You're the original. They had, You're the first one. Yeah, they just Sunday Night Baseball. They just, I had started doing baseball on ESPN television, what they call the backup games. In those days, you had a primary game at uh, 7 and the other game at 10 or 10.30. And the, the, in those hometowns, uh, they would be blacked out. So I would do the games that were seen by next to nobody. But that was fine. I was, again, I was paying my dues. I was getting my feet wet. And I was also very lucky uh, because the Braves were so good and the Braves were always, uh, you know, on national television. We would, we would go to Atlanta and do the backups, backup games there. And so I got to see, you know, Glavin and Maddox and Smoltz and Andrew Jones and young Chipper Jones and all of these great players um, pretty much every week. So I was very lucky. Um, and now all of a sudden working at, uh, at ESPN with a radio background, uh, they go out and purchase the rights to uh, MLB on the radio. 
would I be interested in doing it? And so that was basically how this journey into baseball kind of solidified itself. Uh, first doing the backup games in the mid nineties, uh, to, uh, the, the Sunday night games, 98 through Oh one. Um, and again, in though in 2001, of course we had nine 11. Um, and I, w- I did the first game back, uh, after the cessation of play on the 17th of September, the Braves and the Phillies. And then I would do the first Met game back, which of course was the uh, loading area for all the stuff for uh, the World Trade Center. And then a week later, the Yankee first Yankee game back in New York. So I'm all over the place. Um, and at the end of 2001, my contract was up at ESPN. Uh, and the, uh, uh, the Giants, because I was also doing the Barry Bonds final 13 games. I called his home run 68 through 73 for ESPN. So I was everywhere. I was kind of like athlete's foot. Um, and then the Giants came and asked me if uh, I'd be interested in going to San Francisco to work with John Miller. Uh, but at the same time, in fact, a couple of days before 9-11, uh, I was, we were doing a game in the Bronx and I was sitting in Brian Cashman's office and we're talking, you know, as baseball guys do a few hours before a game about anything and everything. George Steinbrenner uh, walks in and I'd known George from my time in Cleveland. And George uh, says, you know, I watched you on uh, Wednesday night. You're very good, blah, 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 blah. And he was, you know, we're giving each other a bunch of shit just because, we knew each other reasonably well. And George says to, uh, uh, to cash, I need to talk to you. I said, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. And so Steinbrenner leaves. And I said to, uh, I said to Cashman, you know, the, the yes network hadn't started yet. It was going to start the following season. I said, if anything should develop, um, with this new network, which still didn't have a name, yeah, I might be interested in that. Okay, and that was, and that was the end of it, I thought. Um, about an hour goes by, Cashman goes into George's office, I go to the booth, Cashman comes into my booth about you know an hour later and said, I have some good news and some bad news. And I said, I wasn't expecting any, what, what are we talking about here? Well, the bad news is, I mentioned to George, you might be interested in coming to work with us. And he told me to stay the hell out of his broadcasting business, build me a world series champion and just stay away from me. The good news is he wants to hire you. And that was it. So then I said, with that, uh, it was about two weeks before nine 11. Um, I'm, I have a job offer from the Yankees. And then after nine 11 and after the, the, the bond stuff, I have a similar offer, uh, to go to the giants. Um, I opted to take the Yankee job because I grew up in New York and my father was, was in his latter days. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be neat if you could hear me do games on the radio? And that's how I ended up with the Yankees. Yeah. That's George just, you, walking into Cashman's office. And, and you mentioned, in oh one man, what a, what a year Oh one was. And you oh. got to call, you called the Ripken home run at the all-star game in Seattle. 
and and that's kind of a that's kind of the beginning for you of having some pretty big calls from then on out. I wasn't even going to ask you about this, but you brought it up. Tell the audience out there listening to the Boom Pocket what was that like following Bonds down that stretch through uh, through seventy two? You said you called or seventy three sixty eight through seventy three. Uh, this, uh, I called all of them, um, and they. And again, if you remember uh, down the stretch with uh, with Bonds, you know each at bat they would break into programming. And there would be 50,000 people standing, light bulbs flashing. It was like a, a, a disco light with each pitch that was thrown to him. Um, and the thing that was most remarkable to me about that two-week period was that I don't think Bonds, say what you want about what he put into his system and what he did not all of that. You'd say whatever you want. I don't remember in that two-week period him ever swinging at a pitch outside the strike zone. That, to me, among all the other achievements I watched him perform in those two weeks, he was never overwhelmed by the moment. And I, I will always remember that. Um, and then on the morning after he hit what was his 73rd home run, it was against the Dodgers, and I just happened to be there for ESPN. I wasn't the Dodger announcer yet. And I got to know Barry reasonably well, and you can debate his, his demeanor, but we always had a very professional, uh, courteous relationship. I didn't always see that with others, but we, had a, we understood one another, and I think it had a lot to do with me being on SportsCenter. I knew I was not going to give him you know, anything untoward. The morning after his 73rd home run, Bob Nightingale, who's still the baseball writer at USA Today, and I go into the giant clubhouse. Barry arrives that morning and parks his motorcycle outside the clubhouse. And he is wearing this yellow leather motorcycle outfit, complete with the helmet. And it was straight out of Kill Bill. Um, and he walks in. And it's just the three of us sitting around for about a half hour. And the San Francisco Chronicle did this front page, and it was just one giant photo of Bonds hitting his 73rd, and he is just studying it. And I asked him at that moment, I said, "Are you when you see this picture of you, do you see Barry Bonds or you, do you see Barry? And it, he was stunned for a moment. He said, I see Barry. And, and it, again, those are the kinds of moments that, that I remember more than any given call or any of that stuff. But that morning after, there he is in this yellow leather Kill Bill thing, looking at this front page of the San Francisco Chronicle of him looking at Barry and not Barry Bonds. I think that's probably what I remember most about that entire run and the fact that he never swung at a pitch out of the strike zone. Never. He, he was unbelievable, Charlie. And just as a player playing against him, oh. uh, you know, I try to I tell the players, that the current players or the, or the younger players just getting into the game, I said, because they always want to talk about how great was Bonds, how great was Bonds. I mean, the numbers are what they are. They're ridiculous. But I tried to explain to him, I said, there was such a discrepancy 
between Barry and the second best player. The second best player didn't have the ability to hit behind Barry Bonds. He was that good. The rest of us were playing Major League Baseball. Barry was playing slow pitch softball. We couldn't get him to check his swing. Now think about that. Major League Baseball player. He was the Beatles. He was was ridiculous. And everybody else trying to figure out the second best group. It was unbelievable. And I think more so, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we weren't around when Babe Ruth was playing. At least I wasn't, Charlie. I'm kidding. But, well, we did highlights on SportsCenter, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, absolutely amazing. That that time uh, when he was going through that, when he was in that zone, I've never seen anything like it. Never seen anything no, like it. Again, he, he, there were, he, could not, he could be a, not a terribly pleasant character. Got all that, and I saw it. And, you know, I think if he and Jeff Kent got into a fight to the death in the giant clubhouse that year, most of the team would have rooted for a draw. But, okay. Yeah, yeah I agree. <laughs> uh, but, but, they, but they were great players. And what Bonds was able to do with all of that attention, every pitch that was thrown to him for two weeks, and do what he did was so remarkable. And I remember uh, he was in Houston. The Giants were in Houston. And uh, they wouldn't pitch to him. Larry Durker wouldn't pitch to him. And at that point, Larry Durker lost his clubhouse because the player said, we want to compete. Let's not just intentionally walk them every time. And it, w- it was fascinating. Um, Bagwell and Biggio and Bell and all of these other Astro players were really pissed off because they wouldn't pitch to them. They wanted their pitchers to pitch to them. Again, it was such a wonderful time to be inside the sausage factory in that whole Bonds experience. Oh, two, like you said, oh, two to oh, four, got to go back to New York and call games for the Yankees. You got to call Uncle Aaron's Homer in oh, three. Well, by the you know, by the, again, I was by the way, that was that was a pretty good call. But you know who won the Emmy that year, right? <laughs> yeah, two thousand two, three, and four. Two thousand three, of course. You know, uh, Aaron's uh, home run, and you being stone silent, and I feel responsible <laughs> for that. And I'll tell you why in a second. And then in 2004, the Yankees are up 3-0 and the Red Sox staged the comeback. So those two years, the Yankees and Red Sox played each other 26 times and their seasons were determined by one pitch. And so it doesn't get any better than that. Um, so now you're, you're on television for NBC with that, right? Fox. Fox. All right. I get confused and I'll tell you why. Uh, Mike Weissman, who is a friend of mine to this day, was the executive producer. And he, we're talking on the phone. This is obviously before you get hired. And, I, and, and we had known each other, you and I, and I always thought you were reasonably personable, this show notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> and, and I said, you know, having uh, Brett with his brother might be fun. Um, and we were in some restaurant. I was at a table. He came over and we chatted and, we were, and he's thinking about who to, who to bring in. And I brought up your name and he hired you. 
And then you stood there like the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> I'm telling you, uh, now you rewind. Here's what's going through. Here's the Brett Boone of 2021 who who kind of does his research. And, and, you know, I have kind of a kind of a uh, I don't know, an outline where I'm going. You, Brett Boone, 2003, you got you to run the tape back and go, okay, I'm coming off a big year in Seattle. For me, personally, we barely missed the playoffs again. I'm in my heyday. I'm, hey, don't you know who I am? I get a phone call from Fox, and yep. they're interested in it. And, and it's like you're wasting, oh, you're wasting my time. So they offer me, you know, the job. I don't want to do it. I'm tired from the season. What is this announcing stuff? I'm not an announcer. Uh, anyway, they come back with a bigger number and a bigger, eventually we agree to terms. And then I think to myself, well, I'll get to go to Boston and New York and I'll get to, to watch Aaron play in the postseason. It could be worse. I'd show up two minutes before go time, you know, Buck and McCarver say, all right, Booney, you got to open, you got to, you got to break down, you know, what are we looking for tonight from the hitting standpoint of offense? But I just kind of reel it off. Like, okay, this sounds good. Doesn't it? Didn't take it serious one lick. And, you know, I look back, I can't believe me. I got heckled when I came back from that job next year with my teammates. They're like, you didn't say anything. You were horrible. I said, listen, Try being a current player and being critical of current players. I said, that's really hard to do. As you separate, as you get out of the game, I think you're able to be professionally critical. But at the time, I was so worried. And I remember Joe Buck saying to me or Timmy McCarver saying, because that was the big beanball series, you know, and they said, hey, uh, did, did Pedro drill him on purpose? Well, you want me to be honest here? Of course, course he drilled him on purpose. Don't ask me a stupid question. However, I know what we do as players. I knew Pedro by that time was in the clubhouse right in front of that TV watching yours truly, seeing what Brett's going to say. So all of a sudden, it's like, oh, you know, but but I'm so – it's like you can't lie in that situation because it's so obvious. I break it down. I remember the next day going in for those pregame meetings. My first, you know, kind of look at that side of uh, of the ledger, which I'd never been on before. First thing Pedro says is, Booney, I didn't mean to hit him on purpose. Yeah, sure you didn't. I got to face that guy in about four months. That was the toughest little stint. Like I said, looking back, I would have taken it a lot more serious. But at the time, that's what it was. It was current player. I'm doing this to just watch Aaron play a little bit, and I can kind of fudge my way through it, you know, knowing I had a lot to learn, and 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 I have learned a lot since then. But man, that what a what a weird kind of surreal thing. And that's me when I was when I was just I was speechless. We had that big talk the night before with Aaron. He stunk at the time. He was benched that game. He comes in, he pinch hits. When he hits the ball, my brain goes, it's one of the biggest home runs of all time, history of this game. Aaron, my little brother, little Arnie, stinks right now. Pep talk last night. I expect a sack fly or a big double play turn to win the game. That would have been awesome. He just hit one of the biggest homers of all time. That was genuinely me without – and I wasn't – Tearful, like crying, but I was really kind of emotional. 
I'm like, sure. I'm, I'm so happy for him right now. I really don't know what to say. And I remember whoever was in my ear, because that's the first time I'd ever had an earpiece in. Brett, what are you doing? What are you doing? Nope. Less is better. Less is better. And that was just what I was feeling at the time. I, I was so happy for him. I didn't know what to do. And that was my, that was my that was my maiden voyage into the world of broadcasting. Well, that's like, you know, me and Carl Lewis losing it. It was liberating. This is who I am in that moment. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you know, you were a brother who uh, was filled with pride and joy by this most unexpected and historic moment that just happened to come off the bat of your brother. And Again, your brother and I and the other Yankees went to this uh, joint called Dorian's on the east side of Manhattan after after the game, and we probably didn't leave till six or seven in the morning. And I remember telling uh, your brother, I said, whether you like it or not, you and I are stuck with one another for the rest of time, and uh, you get a, I get a better deal out of it than you do. I'm the caboose on your train. Um, but it was, and so again, your brother and I, you and I are kind of, and, and even your dad and I are kind of tied together, uh, as a result of that moment. And it's uh, one of those moments that I will always remember and cherish. Very cool. 2004, you, you, you touched on it earlier. You, you had a chance that next year to see, in my opinion, you know, there's a few things that have stood out in, in my life and my journey. It's one of the most impressive feats I've ever seen by a team. And that was being down 0-3 to the Yankees and the Boston Red Sox rattling off four straight. That's just something that doesn't happen. You were there for it. What's your recollection? I, I, before that, before game four, Kevin Millar and uh, Veritek were heading out of the first base dugout to go to the garage out beyond the underneath the right field area there. And they come over to me and, and, and both of them greet me with the uh, individual fingers. And I thought, well, that's, that's really nice. And they said, you watch. And again, it, 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 we were, we were friends and it was that kind of atmosphere. Said, Millar says to me, if we win tonight, we're going to run the table because our pitching is lined up. And th- that previous night, the Yankees beat them 19-3, whatever the score was. It was crazy. Now, they win that game. So, you've got now Dave Roberts, our manager, um, stealing second. Everybody knew he was going to go. You have Mariano Rivera on in relief. He steals second. And at that moment, at that moment, I felt like the Queen Mary was about to take a U-turn in the middle of the Atlantic. It was palpable. You could feel it. And it doesn't make sense as to why you're down 3-0 or up 3-0 as the case may be. This can't happen. But there was something you could feel. You couldn't touch it. You couldn't smell it. But you could feel it. And then it happened. Um, one game after another, one moment after another. And so when the Red Sox completed this improbable comeback, 
which you know further solidified the, the the great rivalry between the Yankees and the Red Sox. It, I wasn't surprised. One when Roberts got in, and to this moment, I'm not sure he was safe, but it doesn't matter. History will always say he was. You got the sense that, uh oh, something's happening here. And it did. So in those two years, the Yankees and Red Sox played each other 26 times. And it went down to the final game and the final pitch to determine the champions of uh, 2003 and 2004. Doesn't get better than that in baseball. Yeah, definitely the absolute pinnacle of that rivalry. Um, So 2005 to present, you're the Dodger play-by-play announcer. Now, how'd you mm-hmm. go from New York to L.A., which is, is, is the one gig you've always wanted to do, call Dodger baseball games? Yeah. Um, my contract was up with the Yankees after three years. John Sterling, who's been the announcer there since 88, um, and I, we just, we, our styles did not work in the booth. You know, and John and I are, are good friends to this day. But, you know, it just didn't work. Um, the Yankees wanted me to stay and wanted me to do their pre- and post-game show, and I didn't want to be in a studio. So I didn't know quite what, what I was going to do, but I wasn't likely to stay with the Yankees. And George, you know, just showered we, showered me with money that I, I wouldn't mind having, but I didn't want to do that job. And then all of a sudden, in August of 2004, I get a call from the Dodgers. Um, new ownership was taking over, the McCords. And they said, we're going to make a move in, in the radio booth. Would you have interest in coming out to do the Dodgers? Not being a great negotiator, I immediately blurted out, fucking A, Bubba. And... Within a, a week or two, uh, we're suddenly negotiating quietly because, again, uh, it's uh, the Dodgers season hadn't finished. The Yankees season hadn't finished. I was still under contract for a little bit longer. Um, and then we finally put together a deal. And I will put an end to this hideously long story with this. My mom at that point was 90. 93 years old. My dad had just passed away uh, six months earlier. This is all in the house in which I grew up listening to Vin Scully. So now she's getting, her neighbors are all excited because, you know, her son is the Yankee announcer. Now he's in the newspaper all the time. Is he coming back or not? And all this stuff. And she was just getting confused. And so I said, mom, when a deal is put together, I'll come out and we'll talk about it and you'll know. So finally we agree the Dodgers and I to a deal. And um, so now I call her up. I said, I'm going to come out for lunch today. She's in the house on Long Island, which I grew up. I'm in Manhattan. And I said, I've got a deal and I'll tell you all about it. Can you give me a hint? I said, no, I will uh, tell you when, when I get, get home. So I get home, and my mom is 4'11 in tiptoes, but she's tough. Uh, 
So my dad had passed away. And this is the house in which I grew up where I watched the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I now have to tell her I am moving. I'm not just moving around the corner. I'm moving across the country. How am I going to break this news to her? So I sit down. I said, Mom, you remember the team that I rooted for as a kid? And she said, oh, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah. Remember the, the stadium Pop took me to for my first game? She said, oh, Ebbets Field. And then I said, do you remember the name of the announcer who I wanted to be like? She didn't remember her name or his name. I said, well, Vin Scully. And suddenly a light bulb went off in her head and she said, oh, good. When do we move to Los Angeles? <laughs> well, okay. You, my mom had a, a caregiver who had taken care of my father before he passed away. And, and so now I'm trying to explain all this. My phone rings. And so I pick it up and it's a LA area code. I said, let me take this. Uh, Charlie, it's Vin. I want to welcome you to the Dodger family. And it was unbelievable. In the house in which I grew up watching Vin, who is the Babe Ruth of my business, who is in, happy to have me join the Dodgers, I said, Mom, I think I need to take this call. And it was one of those moments where professionally, personally, um, it all happened in that moment. Everybody should have a, a moment, a day like that in their lives. So uh, that's how I ended up being with the Dodgers. And then fast forward to last year with COVID, uh, I didn't think, and I wasn't going to go to the stadium at all. And not if it meant that I would have to retire. Okay. I'm okay with that. I'd rather not. And so I told the, the Dodgers, look, I think I'm just going to opt out this year. Um, and, you know, that was the end of the conversation. The next day they called back and said, uh, well, what if you did the games from home? Well, I didn't think it was technically or personally possible. I said, well, sure. So now I do the season from the living room, just as I did as a child calling Brooklyn Dodger games, I'm calling the World Series from my house. Only people are listening and the Dodgers are winning. And it was like, all right, what's next? So I, I, I've been very fortunate every step of the way. And the fact that the Dodgers uh, were the team I grew up rooting for and they won the World Series and I called the championship from the comforts of my own home. It was like, again, that was that was that was a big cherry on a lovely on a lovely cake. That's storybook right there. I mean, starting off yeah. in, in, in the 60s, and what did you always say from the very beginning? I want to call Dodger games. Now it's coming to fruition. In the 50s. Yeah. I, well, I forget how, I forget how old, old you are sometimes. To be the Dodger <laughs> but to, to do that, to do that, and, and even last year to top it off, you win a world. By the way, how do those rings look? Uh, gaudy. But, you know, those are rings you never wear. You put it in your office where you can see it every day, but 
No, I, uh, that that's uh, you know you know that ring is so big you can put napkins inside of it. That's right. That's right. It's like it's like one of those one of those lollipop rings that you give to little kids. Yeah, with the with yeah, yeah with the it's, with the candy on top. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Charlie. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, man, we covered a lot of territory, a lot of great stories. One of my favorite guys in this game, and and I truly do appreciate you doing this. What we do on the Boone Podcast here at the end is we bring back the voice of the Boone Podcast, Dan Levy, and he's got a question for Mr. Steiner. Danny? Hello, boys. Hello, boys. All right, Mr. Steiner, this one is for you, and it comes from Skip in Boston, and it's a two-parter. A- do you still watch Sports Center? And B, who belongs on the Mount Rushmore of Sports Center anchors? Uh, not a lot. Um, now, I, I ha- so you put four on there? Four. Four. Uh, I think you have to put Chris Berman and Bob Lee. Um, I think. Again, just showing deference to my time there, uh, the late Tom Mees. Um, and then and then it gets hard. Uh, you know, I guess a hybrid of Keith and Dan or a hybrid of uh, or, or, or Robin Roberts, who I dearly love. Uh, so I got three is the fourth. That uh, that's up for debate, I, I, but do I watch Sports Center now? Not that much, and I have to confess, after doing Sports Center for as long as I did, uh, where I had to know everything about everybody in every sport every day. When I was done, I was kind of like Earl Weaver. I just kind of closed the door and started growing more than anything else. Um, my own private tomato patch. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so no, I, I, I'm, I'm not the sports fan that I used to be. Um, and so I don't need to watch sports center anymore. You know, I'll watch some highlights on, uh, on MLB, the network, but not a lot on sports center anymore. No, it's, it's different. Well, first of all, I totally understand all of that. And number two, I would put your face on that Mount Rushmore, pal. You don't have to be that humble. You're up there. You're up there. Well, thank you. You know, and my face up there is just target practice for a pigeon. <laughs> but okay. Although you might be the only one with the face on there that's laughing from the Carl Lewis video. Everybody else would be pretty serious. Well, the, you know, the, the first time uh, sports, uh, sports center, I can't, uh, sports illustrated wrote about sports center. Um, they, they said, they've got this new guy who, who looks like he's pretty good, but clearly he has a face for radio. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, I'll take that. And it wasn't the first time I saw that. And certainly it wasn't the last time I heard it, but it, that's fine. But thank you. Uh, you know, again, if I can be target practice for pigeons, it's a good day. Sadly enough, I get that face for radio at just about every family party I ever go to. So I get that. Yeah. I get it. All right, Mr. Steiner, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Hey, my honor. Thank you so much. Mailbag.
All right, Brett, you know that sound. It is time for the Brett Boone mailbag. Ready to dig in? Let's go, Danny. Okay, let's head on in. This one comes from Eric in Simi Valley. Brett, Aaron Rodgers just hosted Jeopardy. How do you think you would do on the show, and what game show would the Boone dominate on? Oh, Jeopardy. I don't know if I'd be any god man i might be i might be good it would it depend on the topic um i watched jeopardy for years and i haven't watched in a long time so i'm a little out of practice i i do okay i wouldn't be great i'd be really good on the prices right <laughs> is that what you're good at i'm good at it <laughs> for some reason i can see you being pretty good on the prices right i don't know why all right let's head back into the old mailbag all right, this one comes from Jeff in San Diego. Brett, are you a Marvel or DC comic guy? And which one of those movies are you a fan of? I'm not. I'm not at all. My kids are. Uh, no, I, I, I really don't get into it. And uh, when I was a kid, they said, I'm so out of touch with that. I think of Marvel and that type of stuff. I think of Superman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman back in the day in the 70s. You know, they used to come on TV. Uh, so, no, I, I oh man, hate to disappoint. Not into it at all. Well, that just knocked off about three listeners. So thanks for not choosing one of them, Booner. <laughs> just had to say Wolverine. Done. All right. That's going to do it. That would be the A. <laughs> be rigorous, on, rigorous honesty. Hey, that's what we pay for around here. Rigorous honesty. That's part of the uh, Boone Podcast intro. That's going to do it for the Boone Podcast as well as the mailbag. And again, if you want to go ahead and fire off some questions, you can get them on Twitter at the Boone 29 He's also accessible on Facebook and Instagram. My name is Dan Levy. I am the technical director, producer, and voice of the Boone Podcast. The executive producer of the Boone Podcast is Rich Herrera. Digital content for the Boone Podcast is handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors, friends, and all those who love baseball. And make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Take care. <laughs>